You know what really makes us mad is wasting money on CDs with only one or two good songs. Yeah. Tell them about punk. What's up, posers? Welcome to Punk Lotto Pod. I'm your co-host, Justin Hensley. I am your other co-host, Dylan Hensley. And this is the show where we choose one year at random and select one punk, hardcore, emo, or punk-adjacent album from that year to discuss. I feel like it's weird to point out we don't have guests when we don't have guests multiple weeks in a row. It is the new normal. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's difficult. It's um, it's not a good time of year to try and book guests. Yeah. Yeah, bad time of year, definitely. Not a great, not an easy time to schedule people, but it's fine. We've we've found that guests don't really affect our numbers that much. So <laughs> don't tell them that. Uh oh, <laughs> they find out they don't have to do this shit. <laughs> oh, you mean it's not helping me at all, either? <laughs> Maybe should I edit that out? <laughs> I have nothing to offer you except opinion. Nah, I believe in transparency and podcasting. Except no one will say their numbers. <laughs> no one says numbers. No. no one talks numbers. Unless you're like really close. Here's the thing. It's bad. They're bad. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Everyone's numbers. Are. Unless, unless you're like famous already. Yeah. You have a built-in audience or you're in a built-in infrastructure. Yeah. Basically. Like an NPR podcast or someone yeah. huge like that. If you are not involved with some other entity already or known for your other stuff outside, listens are low for everybody. So it's a it's a flooded market. And you know what? It's fine. The barrier of entry is low. So it should be as long as you have a steady amount that grows over time, not a steady amount that shrinks over time. If it shrinks over time, you should probably hang it up. (laughs) Yeah. Retool. But as long as it grows, no matter how slow, you're doing something right. Weird little podcast pep talk here at the top, but here we are. Your affirmation. Start a podcast. As my cats make some. You can always do like two episodes and quit. <laughs> yeah. You know, and no one has to know you did it. Don't promote it. <laughs> I still don't tell tell the majority of people I know that I do a podcast. It's yeah. It's my secret shame. <laughs> when I went and saw uh, our friend's new band play live uh, right before right before they played, he saw me and he goes, this guy's got a podcast. And I was like, don't, don't, don't tell people that. <laughs> I'm only going to college for broadcasting because of doing a podcast. Those are the people I will yeah, be like, here's what I do. Yeah. <laughs> don't just tell strangers. You don't know who to, who to give that information to. <laughs> Oh, what's it called? Uh, so it's got a really dumb name that uh, doesn't really make any sense anymore. Uh, <laughs> what do you talk about? Music. Oh, cool. You won't like them. <laughs> the old wrong take twins. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're not twins. We are brothers. Uh, if you're listening to the show and you don't know much about us. Uh, our voices are very difficult to distinguish. We are not twins. We actually look pretty different. <laughs> like, not related different. Yeah. 
Uh, I don't think our voices sound that much alike anymore since we've changed microphones over the years. Yeah. Our In speech the v- patterns are definitely, there are some similarities. Oh, yeah. For sure. But that's not why you tuned in. <laughs> yeah, so uh, if you want to hear more of that you silly rambling, head over to our Patreon, and for $1, you get access to all of our bonus audio. This week, we will be doing an I'm Listening, where we talk about the albums we've listened to since the last time we did an I'm Listening, which, at this rate, was like two weeks ago. But uh, I think we're going to pare that down, just so we're not like, all right, we've got 25 albums each to talk about. In truth, I don't know how much I have to talk about because I have listened to quite a lot of jazz <laughs> in the last month. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, slim Pickens. Look forward to that. You want to hear me run down my favorite ESP discs from 1966? <laughs> I've been listening to a lot of 2022 stuff, so I'll, I'll balance it out with some new talk. I got a few 86 stuff I could probably talk about as well that I don't think we'll make it to a dance of days. Let me see. Let me look at my, uh, before we promise that we're going to do this. And then it turns out I have nothing to talk about. Let me look at my, uh, top albums in the last month and, and see what I feel confident that I could talk about. Let's see. Yeah, I got plenty. I got plenty. You got plenty. Got enough to talk about that. Our listeners will want to hear me talk about. Yeah. Well, you better. We're trying to sell this thing. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's over on Patreon. Today's a little uh, loosey-goosey, I guess, because we're doing that thing where we stall and don't want to talk about the record. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, if you've seen the uh, title of this episode already, um, and you're a super fan. Whoa. No, no. Uh, I actually have a rich variety of uh, takes and opinions on this record, so yeah, yeah. There's there's stuff there. We're on all forms of social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at PunkLottoPod, email address PunkLottoPod at gmail.com. We have a voicemail line, it's 202-688-PUNK, substack, PunkLottoPod.substack.com. Those are all the plug plugs, so let's get those out of the way before we move along. So, okay, we were like, okay, what are we doing? What are we doing? Uh, we've done a lot of 90s, we've done a lot of 2000s lately, and I, I'm i living in the 80s currently with my Dance of Days project, so I don't. I don't really want to pick anything from the 80s. Dylan will probably wind up picking the next 80s thing just for that specific reason. Um, then I think we're going to do, uh, while Dylan's not recording with me next week, uh, we'll have a substitute co-host. And uh, we're going to do something from the 2010s on that episode. So we were like, well, 70s we haven't hit in a minute. And you were down to do something from the 70s. So I gave you the year 1979. Because it was the one we'd done in, hadn't done in the longest. It's been almost a year. Uh, it was November that we did it last year. It was either six. It was either seventy six or seventy nine. And yeah. there's nothing left in seventy six. We are so close to just retiring that year. Uh, I, we figured I, there were big records that we hadn't touched from seventy six that would be ideal to leave for like a guest. But I'm I'm half tempted to say we when we hit episode like two fifty. We just do 76 to retire it. We just do a, yeah. A special fa- Bon Voyage farewell, 1976. Just crushing a six pack and uh, slam it through 76. Yeah. Um. So we, we're like, okay, 79. It's been a year since we've done 79. What have we talked about from 1979 in the past? Well, we've done a couple things. So let's see. We've done this year. One, two, three, four, 
five times. Oof. Uh, we the first one we did Punishment of Luxury, Laughing Academy, and the Addicts Lunch with the Addicts. A case in point for why <laughs> we uh, don't randomly select albums anymore. <laughs> yeah, that record was bad, and it didn't perform well. And it was just like cool. I think it's one of our lowest listened episodes from that era. Also, it was also episode eleven, so way back. Then we came back to it in uh, number thir- episode thirty-two with the Buzzcocks, a different kind of tension, and sudden funs self-titled EP. Sudden fun. Whenever you, we did all of those, because I could see all of those like EPs we did right here, they all sounded like the same band. The Carpets. The Deadbeats, the Suzannes, Sudden Fun. It was like the same band over and over and over again. Yeah. But that was the final Buzzcocks album until they reunited, right? That yeah. was the deal. Uh, then we didn't touch it again until episode 99. <laughs> and that was the Germs GI with uh, comic artist Jay Gonzo. That was a fun episode. That was a big, that was a big record to do. Yeah. That episode's in our top 10 most listened episodes, too. Then in episode 122, we did the UK subs, another kind of blues. That's where we figured out their whole thing and why they have so many albums forever. Yeah. Do you feel like they kept going because they were like, we have to do the whole alphabet? (laughs) I think so. Once they got to like pretty far, like H, they were probably like, well, we just got to keep going. It was, it's been the same lead singer, but as far as I think everybody else has just been new people, you know, coming in and out of the band. So that's easy to do whenever, as long as the lead singer wants to tour forever and never have a real, <laughs> real life. <laughs> and the last time we did it was episode 155 with the Undertones self-titled album. So what else came out in 79? Well, let me see. What did I consider before that's we talk right. about the big records? There were a couple of records that I thought about. Yeah, you were shooting a couple of names at me this week here we go here we go here are the screenshots that i took uh <laughs> records that i was considering briefly considered new values by iggy pop uh mostly one? just because i don't know anything about that one i was gonna say which which one even is that one he's shirtless with the purple background is it, it not is, a bowie record it is the uh no it's produced by james williamson it is the record it's the next record after the Bowie records um, after the first two. I mean, Kill City came out after, but was made up of older recordings. But yeah, this is then this is the next record after Lust for Life. Uh, so I was like, all right, I've listened to the first two Iggy Pop records this year. I, I would be curious to keep going with him and see what the next record is. It's got a pretty good rating. Um, 45 minutes long. <laughs> Though I guess Lust for Life is 41 minutes, and the idiot, oh, the idiot is 38. Breezy 38. But I, uh... Yeah. Though I like, guess the record we talked about today is 44 minutes, so... Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean... Ultimately, I wasn't quite feeling it, but... Uh, I threw a kind of an oddball at you in a model room by P-Model. Uh, P-Model were a Japanese uh, new wave, post-punk, synth-punk. Um, really interesting band. I've listened to some of their records. This is a really good record. I do recommend it. Uh, especially if you like early Devo, early XTC, that kind of stuff. You're always threatening me with P-Model. Yeah, because <laughs> well, no one's ever going to pick them, and someday we're going to get into it. And 
P model and pylon. Those are the ones that you're always like, they're pretty good. Those were good bands. <laughs> well, I got pylon. Yep. I thought about a can of bees by the soft boys. That might, I thought that might be a good kind of, um, almost kind of a punk adjacent, a really early punk adjacent record. Uh, one of those bands that weird, weirdly kind of hard to categorize, like, Early neo psych, sort of post punk, kind of an art rock band. I like some of their stuff. I am not familiar with that record. Uh, and we had a good discussion on, and this was one of the bigger contenders. Um, ultimately, it came down between this one and the record I picked. Uh, but I did suggest Head Injuries by Midnight Oil, which is their second album. It's pretty well regarded. Uh, but I do think that. Ultimately, our conversation was, is it that record? And it's not It's not the first record, and it's not one of their uh, 80s records. Where they have a string of maybe like three records in a row in the 80s that are kind of the most essential records, the best examples of Midnight Oil, I think. But they've always been a band that I've been – I really want to do a deep dive on and like listen to their stuff. But I've also never known where to go with their discography. I have listened to their 82 record, 10, 9, 8, 7. It just counts down. I'm not going to yeah. say all of the numbers. You know the numbers from 1 to 10. <laughs> it's a bad album name. Great record, though. It's a really good record. Yeah. It it seems like the most pop, popular ones are Blue Sky Mining, Diesel and Dust, and that one. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. If you say it real fast, it's not that bad. Yeah. I don't know. They also have a lot of records. Like they went a long time. Are they done? Or are they one of those ones that still goes too? They are technically still together. I think the last thing they well, they put out a record this year. Oh. Called Resist. They're also a very political band. Yeah. Which is cool. Yeah. I I need to hear more of their stuff. I just know the big songs. Which are there more than one big songs? Mm, maybe not in the U.S. I don't know. Yeah. Beds of Burning has 215 million plays, and the rest are like 30 million, 22 million, 17 million, 12 million, which is still high, but... Well, a little bit more context on 1979, so this is what... Punk is dead, right? I don't know. Uh, I don't know what the cultural perception of punk... I mean, The Clash were definitely still a big band, but I guess it's you could potentially argue that punk is selling out in 79 yeah so like let's look at the pure punk records we got london calling by the clash and i mean you know how pure of a punk record is that they do so much experimenting on that record yeah it's a double album and yeah uh the slits cut which is pretty important record the dams machine gun etiquette important for them because it was the they're coming back and be like no 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 ignore that last one Stiff Little Fingers in Inflammable Material, the undertones to the self-titled. It, it, I think it's the year of the bands of the, who held out. Yeah, interestingly, there are no Ramones records. Uh, yeah. In 79, probably because they were um, being tortured by Phil Spector recording End of the Century. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess we're, we're in a weird... I think 79 is a little more pure than maybe is... is an accurate descriptor. I mean, it's definitely people who are over it trying to go in new directions and do weird stuff. New wave is kind of solidifying as a genre, but there are definitely bands who 
kept going. So we're past that first wave of like, oi, this is the new trend. We're punk, you know, jumping yeah. on it. And <laughs> I mean, the, a lot of those bands, kind of those also ran bands, would put out more records uh, into the 80s. But yeah, it's a lot of bands shifting into post-punk at this point. Gang of Fours Entertainment came out that year, which is their probably their most important record. It's their first record. See, they were kind of a holdout too, though. Like '79. I mean, post punk still. I mean, post punk started in '77, so you know, that's a thing. But like, Gang of Four are almost considered like one of the pillars of post punk. Who else would be in that pillar? Would you put Joy Division in there? Yeah, I mean, yeah, they're definitely the. If there's one post punk band that every post punk punk band is influenced by it's probably joy division so yeah uh, so let's say four pillars of post-punk would be joy division gang of four our band we're talking about today now who's that fourth pillar of post-punk talking heads nah they're too many other things are they too american the fall they're not as mainstream though but they are very informative of the current post-punk trend so Mm. i don't know that their impact was like immediate they were very much doing their own thing for a really long time yeah as far as like who who says stage for 80s post-punk is it public image limited probably meh and i mean yeah especially as being like kind of a first class uh of punk shifting into post-punk with um john lydon yeah, because I wouldn't really put Echo as a pillar and the cure either. Maybe Susie and the Banshees. Yeah, it probably yeah, is. Su- yeah, Susie are so much more important to like goth rock as a genre. Yeah, that's why I was like, uh, probably not the cure or Bauhaus. Yeah. So, yeah, it's uh, it's there's the four pillars and the that fourth pillar is a little wobbly. You got to put a, like a matchstick, a match. <laughs> book underneath it there's two crass records that year stations of the crass and feeding feeding of 5000 so there's your like true punks is crass our first example of true punks well i don't know germs i mean yeah i guess in the uk i guess what i'm thinking i mean yeah in the u.s we got the germs what else we got coming out of here uh if you look at the eps there's probably something pretty important yeah that might be more important for america yeah we got black flags nervous breakdown horror business by the misfits yeah so early uh early hardcore really yeah that's kind of it though wow the avengers self-titled seven inch it huh it's surprising i guess just an american hardcore it just like took off at one time like everybody did it at the same time because is it 80 is when it really blows up here yeah, 80s, Fresh Fruit, Los Angeles, Is It Real? Even then, it's still not very, like, Circle Jerks. Hmm. Why did it take so long in the States to really pop off? I mean, I think it was going on, but maybe it's not the records aren't coming out. Yeah. At the rate that they would, just because no one wants to put those records out. <laughs> the only people who are putting records out are the ones who are doing it themselves, so you get SST and discord and that's about it yeah and discord not even in 1980 yet so um you did say there's no ramones record there is it's it's alive came out that year oh that's right that's right they made money that year 
and a significant record uh, in its own right. It is a it's one of the more essential punk live records, I guess. Is it? I mean, who who else had put out any punk live albums in the late seventies? That same year, we've got nobody. Yeah, <laughs> John Cale, <laughs> The Stranglers, Heartbreakers. Yeah, because I think the live record was also a signal of like major label excess. Well, you put out this big live stadium album. Apologies to anyone in England who actually found this episode <laughs> at random. <laughs> I really, I want to go deeper on the charts. What's back there? Like, I I feel like there's something we haven't put our finger on in 79. What's missing? Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, but it doesn't go anywhere. Like, you can't, there's a boys record. The ruts. You know, it... Ian Drury and the Blockheads. Great Rock and Roll Swindle came out that year. What's missing? What if we go New Wave? Because this website separates New Wave from punk, even though New Wave is a subgenre of punk. Stupid website. Yeah, I mean, New Wave is really just an amalgam of genres, so. The Police, Elvis Costello, The Attractions, Blondie, Eat to the Beat. Cars, Candio, Patti Smith's Wave, Manifesto by Roxy Music. Man, it's not even like New Wave, New Wave. It's like still its infancy as well. Squeeze is cool for cats. Uh, a record of interest to punks, I guess. Uh, Overkill by Motorhead. Yeah. The Pleasure Principle uh, by Gary Newman. Uh, specials by The Specials. There you go. There we go. That's what's missing. Yeah. Two tone. That's the that's the other big big thing happening in '79. And I knew I'd there was I I knew there had to be something. They, it's probably even more important than what's actually coming out of like the punk scene, or because it, the specials were coming out of the punk scene. Yes, they had their like England had their scenes where everybody dressed the certain way, the mods and the chavs and the punks and the what were the specials people called? Were they mods too? Because they wore suits. Yeah, I mean, they would have been associated. Rude but boys. I don't know, mods are, like, into the who, and... Yeah. You know, skinheads and rudies are uh, kind of their own yeah. little scene. So, 79 good year? Bad year? There's so many, like, important records that year that it's hard to say it's a bad year, but, like, you once you scratch the surface of, like, the 10, 15 most important albums... But I guess those 10, 15 albums became iconic albums, too. So it's hard to really even compare because it's like, well, these are special albums that were going to stand out regardless of what year they came out in. So you kind of have to look at like the next tier down and it's not that strong, I feel. Once you're like past the iconic records, it's artier, yeah. uh, which ties into the record that we're talking about. I mean, it's like the raincoats, uh, you know, chrome. Uh, I mean, Literally. even the B-52s had like kind of an art scene you know it was such a like theatrical performance yeah uh which is the first b52's record uh swell maps um yeah pop group there's a XTC. record there's a magazine record yeah it is it's it's artier what's tubeway army sound like it looks like croft book they're very synthy as far as i know but i'm not very familiar so something i guess something to be admired about 79 is that there is a willingness to experiment 
and we don't get into the really hard-lined uh, definitions of punk that, you know, as much as there's, like, amazing, you know, American hardcore, really important records that are really thought-provoking and creative and challenging, it as a as a genre homogenized. Yeah. And, and turned a lot of people away from punk because it was like, oh, you can't do anything that's, like, arty or feminine or weak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, yeah. Okay, well, let's, we're getting arty, so let's talk about the record then. So I gave you the year 1979, and you selected 154 by Wire. Formed in London, England in 1976, they released their first album, Pink Flag, in 1977 and invented post-punk. They followed up with their second album, Chairs Missing, in 1978 and released this album, September 1979, on EMI Records imprint Harvest Records and Warner Brothers in the United States. This is their third full-length album, and the personnel is Colin Newman on guitar and vocals, Graham Lewis on bass and vocals, B.C. Gilbert on guitar and Robert Gray, a.k.a. Robert Gotobed on drums. And the album was produced by Mike Thorne, who also performs the synths and keys on this record. And he had produced their previous two albums as well. OK, so it's already what. Uh, OK, look, first thing, first thing I always ask, what made you choose one five four? There were a couple of factors. Uh, one, we had this record on our poll list for a long time and no one would pick oh, yeah. it. So I, I thought, well, we should finally do this record, uh, since for a really long time we were considering talking about this record. Mm. I also was interested because in my own personal listening, listening, I'm going through 77, uh, and was due to hit Pink Flag, um, which came out in December of 77. So I was like, well, okay, I'll just go ahead and jump the gun because there's not a ton of stuff in November and December left on the, you know, in my year. And I'm I'm not as focused on that. So I was like, I'll go ahead and do that record and compare. I figured I'm thinking about Wire. Let's go ahead and get all of it down one time. And I recently saw someone tweet 154 is the best Wire record. And I was like, oh, really? <laughs> I've heard it before. I'm inclined to say no, it's not, though it is very good. But uh, so I, I wanted to put that to the test and see what's my ranking. But uh, yeah, 
I don't know. I figured Wire is an important band, and for some people, for some reason, we haven't touched them significantly on the show. So, uh, we haven't touched them because we don't really assign guests the '70s because they don't really care about the '70s, <laughs> and uh, they have a lot of other records, but no one cares about anything past the '70s really when it comes to Wire. And we still have two other Wire records that someone can choose in the future if they are willing to. Yeah. I'm not gonna pick another Wire record ever again. Yeah, yeah. Mostly because I'm gonna put most of my thoughts on the first three Wire records on this episode. <laughs> yeah, we'll probably never do another episode of Wire just solo. So it'll be like if a guest wants it, so we can have their take. Because yeah, this might be our our Wire. Wirepedia. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. So I was trying to remember. I think I've heard all three of the first. Yes, I I know I've heard all three of the first records. Um, the kind of classic era, because then like they break up later. They reunite, of course, very soon after that, but they were done after one five four for the time being. And so the it's considered the classic era. I don't know any other wire record that is viewed as like, oh, that's important or that's essential listening. Now that's what I call music, you know, because yeah, if you look at like the ideal copy in a bell is a cup until it isn't is struck. Those might be the next two most important wire records, but not by a lot. It's like 87 and 88 when those come out. Well, yeah, because I mean, those are the first two records after after the reunion. Yeah. So, yeah, I've heard the I've heard the key, the required listening wire records. And so I've heard one five four and I couldn't remember like exactly when I listened to it. But also at the same time listening to it. Again, I was like, I have no memory of any of these songs because there's something just about this album that refuses to stick in my brain. It, I don't know. Okay, what did you think of this album? Okay, let me think about how does how do I how do I approach <laughs> this? My previous opinion of this record was that it was great, or oh, maybe not yeah. great, but really good uh, and underrated. I would not have put it above chairs missing. I might have put it above Pink Flag. Uh, If you asked me to rank the first three Wire records prior to this week, I might have tried to be like, oh, 154 is better than Pink Flag. But I listened to the first, well, actually, I really did go through their first five records this week. This week? (laughs) Yeah. That's a lot of Wire. So... I w- and I was just like, well, I'm going to do Pink Flag. So I was like, I may as well just keep going in chronological order. Uh, I would not rank 154 above Pink Flag. <laughs> uh, I would rank it third in the, probably third in their discography overall. Uh, I would say Chairs Missing, Pink Flag, this, probably A Bell is a Cup, and then The Ideal Copy. But I'm a little softer on those later records. I, I was not paying a ton of attention to them <laughs> in all honesty. But yeah, so like my previous uh listen to this record was kind of on its own out of context of their discography and not being super into them when I listened to this record before. So I didn't have really firm opinions about any wire records. They were still very much kind of a mystery of a band to me as far as like what what their deal is, what their appeal is but putting this record into context and knowing a little bit more about them 
I think they made the right choice breaking up after this record. It certainly gave them credibility in coming back. I don't know where they could have gone after this record. When you look at how the first three records progress, you have this almost like riveted, like machinist version of punk. This like, this is the formula for a punk song and we're going to play it very short and fast and it's not going to have a lot of dynamics and it's not going to have a lot of parts per song. It's going to be very stripped down and it's just very mechanical. And then they break on the next record. They almost kind of like break song form entirely with like a lot of tracks being like, like tone poems, just these like, you know, kind of ambient tracks. And, but they also like splice in these again, these like really template songs where it's like this is an idea one idea and that that's the whole song and it's like really catchy or has something really important to say or kind of like a statement to make Uh, but if there's not a lot of bells and whistles to it and then this record dismantles their songwriting even more to where there's maybe three songs with hooks a handful of songs that are up tempo I I don't know if they had stayed together. I can't imagine they could have done anything other than like a frippin' Eno, like, you know, ambient art rock record. I don't I don't know what they could have done, which is kind of what some of the members did do with their own material afterwards. But I think breaking up and then coming back, they could kind of rebuild the uh, the template of Wire as a band and what kind of songs they would write. So it's listening to this record. I have a, I don't know. I'm kind of torn. There's when I actively am listening and I'm engaging with the record, I'm like, ah, some cool stuff here. I really like this song. I like what they're doing here. I like what they're doing there. But then when I like, I'm done listening to the record and I just am like reflecting back. I'm like, I don't, did I like that? I didn't, I can't recall the songs as well. And I can't, there's no hooks. It's it's a very hook free record. There's only like one or two spots where I feel like there's actually a really strong hook. So like it, it doesn't I can't like bring myself back to the record when I'm not actively listening to it. So when I'm actively listening to it, I'm like, this is good. This is good. This is good. I stop listening to it and I'm like, did I even like that? Which I have proof that I liked it because my notes in the moment as listening to it, I have positive things to say about most of the songs on the record. So. And I feel like that with it's just like it evaporates the second. I don't know. I have a hard time just hanging on to this album. And I think you have to when judging or deciding on an album, you have to be like, well, what does the moment say versus later? Like your thoughts on it reflecting later, because there'd be there'd be it applies to almost everything that you like enjoy and appreciate, like re- reviewing something the second you saw it or listened to it is not going to give you the same review as if you waited like a week to think about it or talk about it. And so I like it when I'm listening to it. I don't like it when I'm not listening to it. It's kind of how I feel. Thank you. 
I think that this is a record that is I think that this is a record that you could compare to like process art like or like Dadaism and and a lot of that and I mean which probably was a big influence you know they were art school uh kids but a lot of that a lot of that contemporary art that is about the way that it's made or the textures that are used or the the way that it's presented rather than the object that is made from it or the image that it conveys uh it can be non-representative and kind of abstract and and this record in particular is much more abstract than any other Y records i've heard i don't know what any of these songs are about I can listen to some of the other stuff and go like, okay, I think I know what they're saying here. I know what kind of statements they're making. This record, I don't get any real statements, which is, I think, part of what makes it difficult to attach yourself to. You have like, not only do you not have these like melodies that you want, that you can repeat, you don't really have any lyrics you can repeat either. It's very formless and it's not improvised, but it's definitely written in such a way that it's trying to avoid repetition almost even by being repetitive it's being like repetitive of an idea that you can't duplicate later that you can't recall and it i feel like it forces you to i think ultimately i think you do have to base your opinion of this record on how it makes you feel while you listen to it well it's also the only way i can really recall what's happening too is if i'm actively listening to it like I can describe what's happening, but then when it's over, I'm like, yeah, it's kind of ambient and kind of angular. Like it's like the two moods. And then there's like one really catchy pop song on the whole thing. Yeah. If I look at the track listing, there's like there's like three songs that I can sort of recall the melody or like some rhythmic part or that I would describe as like even like some of their best songs. Two people in a room. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fifteenth, and then the like least song title song, which I think is really funny. Map ref, forty one <laughs> degrees north, ninety three degrees west. Yeah, <laughs> sounds like an ELO song. <laughs> it does. It's, yeah, I was like, this is power pop for it, sure. It is so poppy and catchy, and it's such a non song title. It's <laughs> really funny. It was the only single for the record, too. Yeah. And so it was like even the labels like, oh, yeah, that's a thing, too. But the labels like, yeah, this is the obvious single. I was like, but also it's not the obvious single because it doesn't fit with anything else on the record. So is that a good single or are you no, just literally not. only trying to sell a single? Which in the UK, 
yeah, you could just be trying to sell a single. But also, I wouldn't put it past the label to be like, oh, we got this droning, uh, spacey, mumbling art rock record uh, with like two or three actual songs on it. Let's put the pop song out and hopefully we'll trick people into buying the album. (laughs) Which to me, if like I heard that song and it's the only song I knew and then I got this record, I'd be mad. What did they B-side it with? That's pretty important. Let's see. Uh, It wasn't released. It was just released as a 12-inch sampler. They did a... So they did a sampler with I Should Have Known Better, Map Ref, Blessed State, the 15th, uh, on returning. They also did a single with Map Ref backed with Go Ahead, which is a non-album song. They're listed in this weird order on Discogs. Yeah, there it is. So what is that non-album song? Uh, a Question of Degree was also released in 79. Is that... So the B-side, I just sampled it really quick. It's four minutes long. Uh, it is basically just drone and drums. <laughs> okay. So, well, okay. If you bought the single, you would have got that B-side and been like, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> is the record going to sound like this? Yeah. So uh, mentioning the label earlier, apparently... EMI at the time was unhappy with this record. They had done a shakeup in personnel. And so now the people in charge were not down with whatever wire we're doing, which made me think, man, is this the first time in punk history where the, the top of the label changed and all of a sudden nobody's interested in the band anymore. That would happen a lot in the nineties, but I guess I could see if like you signed the band off of pink flag and you're like let's get more pink flags and you're not you're not getting anything like those that record twice now no yeah because only i mean i love chairs missing I, I think it's a great record from beginning to end and i like the experimental stuff i like the arty drony weird stuff that they, they do on that record but only like half of that record is comparable to pink flag like sonically like in terms of like doing the upbeat having kind of the catchy melodies and having the like condensed kind of condensed kraut rock tempo beat thing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, only, you know, there's there's weird stuff on chairs missing that I can absolutely see that being a turnoff. If you if your introduction to the band was Pink Flag. Yeah. So it's it's interesting. So I found I saw this quote from from Colin Newman, and he said they wanted to experiment with the marketing for the record. And he said, we'd worked out a sales strategy for 154 that EMI couldn't see at all. They couldn't understand a rock band that wanted to do a week in a theater as an event and wanted to promote 154 with videos or left field TV adverts. We wanted to help them sell records. They thought we were simply being intransigent. So they wanted videos and left field TV adverts. So I guess in England, they probably would have been like, no, we want you on top of the pops and old gray whistle test. Like, we don't want you doing because MTV wasn't a thing yet. Yeah. Left field. So that would have, I don't even know what that would be as far as creatively. So even then they were in the marketing, they were like, nah, don't market us like you market everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> so the, obviously they're like, we're done with you. We don't want to do anything else with you. They didn't because they didn't do the next record, which was way later too. So uh, the title 154 is also in reference to the number of shows, live shows they had played up to that point when the record came out. So they had done 154 shows. And prior to this record, they had done a tour with Roxy Music of Europe. And 
their response to it was like, it was just kind of awkward and we didn't love it. And so they didn't tour in support of this album either because they said half the band didn't want to tour at all. Like two of them wanted to stay home. And he said that the, whoever the interview was, was like, yeah, I think they just, it was their personal life stuff and they were trying to like stay home for that kind of stuff. And they were all sort of drifting apart anyway at that point. So I think everybody was like, yeah, whatever. We're all interested in doing something solo now anyway. So it, it feels like a, it feels like a record that a band about to break up puts out too, you know? It's funny that they toured with Roxy Music because there's a lot of moments on here that feel like they're aping Roxy. Yeah. It's definitely the more like melodic and like song forward parts. It it feels like they're doing Roxy impressions. <laughs> and I mean, you can definitely see like an Eno influence on like the ambience and the texture and even some of like the little odd guitar parts sound very much like Brian Eno kind of the kind of guitar parts on his records but but yeah it's uh i wouldn't i hesitate i hesitate to say it's a weird record because i get what they're doing and to me weird to me weird feels like something i don't understand Mm -hmm. or like a choice i wouldn't make and i certainly can see how they arrived at the conclusions that they did and made the choices they did that they did for this record and I think it would have been cool as a performance, almost as like a performance art piece for them to have had the marketing done the way that they wanted, because that sounds like really there could have been some really cool content that would have been generated, you know, Mm -hmm. adjacent to it with music videos and and just like weird. I'm I'm imagining they're just doing these like weird commercial spots, (laughs) really experimental commercial spots. I don't know what that would what that could even really be, but. Would would absolutely add to the whole like almost like the rejection of commodification, uh, uh, you know, and the like de-emphasizing the songs themselves and more the atmosphere and the the experience of listening to it and consuming it. It's unfortunate that that didn't happen the way that they wanted because that would have been very unique. Yeah, I could also see EMI be like, and you're not even gonna tour. Uh, what are you? <laughs> it's a tough spot for, but also at the same time, it's EMI. They were like a gigantic record label. They had huge bands on there. It's like they could afford to to take a little loss on wire, you know? Yeah, it's a thing where I feel like it's it would have required them to figure things out <laughs> because they can't just go through their normal marketing and distribution channels and. You know, they can't rely on their, you know, their payola um, people. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, it's always and that's always the the thing that happens, though. Like you, you have to wonder what a major label is even doing with an art band like this. <laughs> well, in England, it's because they were scooping up all the punk bands and then they just turned into an art band while they were under their label. They weren't an art. I mean, they were arty. They, you know, but. Not in the way that they wanted them to be already, you know? Yeah. And I mean, they're not David Bowie. Yeah. They're not still putting out pop singles. I mean, they, you know, they did have a pop single on here, but. Yeah. I wonder if it was written specifically to be a pop single for them. Let's give something like that. Was it under, yeah, was it. By direction. At the the direction of the label or, yeah, did they, or did they write it independently and we're like yeah we'll put it on there 
Because I could see both. Because it's so drastically different from the rest of the record that it could have been just them being like, let's throw this weird Cars type song on here. <laughs> There seems to be a degree of intention to it with them giving that giving it that song title. Yeah, it's it's cheeky. It's which it was also meant to be an estimate for the center of the American Midwest was how it. But it was also one of them figured out the exact degrees, but it was apparently very close to Centerville, which actually is considered. So like his estimate was pretty close. That's but really it's just like, why are you trying to decide what that is? <laughs> He's looking at a map and being like, I think that's the center. <laughs> so uh, they're a band who has um, three songwriters. There are four people in the band. Five, really, though, if you count their producer. Um, but four songwriters in the band. So it's that they're trying to split their like writing ability, writing space in their... Um, they're talking about space was limited on those records. So you're kind of competing with each other to get songs on the album and looking at, there's a lot of songs where it's like one guy will write the lyrics, but the other will write the music. And I'm almost, I don't even know. I assume whoever did the lyrics is who sings the songs, but I could be wrong with that too. So when I was basing my, like looking at the track listing going, what did I like? What did I not like? I'm like, I like that. I like that. I like that. Oh, okay. Those are the same guy. I, I don't like that one as much. It's like, oh, okay, those are those are the other guy. I think I like um, Colin Newman's songs more. I was gonna say all of the songs that stand out to me that I really like, Colin wrote the music. Yeah, and the ones that I'm like, <sighs> Graham Lewis wrote those. Yeah, and he wrote like, and you can tell that they're written because they're bass forward songs <laughs> too. I mean, yeah, there's a touching display is the seven minute sludge song. Yeah. In the middle of this record. Uh, that's a Graham Lewis song. Yeah. The opening track, I should have known better. Which is Gilbert. Okay, <laughs> but it's not it's not a good opener. No, I think it's a bad opener. I think it's a good song, but it should have been sequenced later in the record. Yeah, I would have taken a different song to start off with. But I say a Newman's my favorite, but then he also like 
he does the last two tracks on there, and I feel like those are two of the most forgettable songs on the whole record. They are. Indirect Inquiries and 40 Versions. 40 Versions co-written by um, Bruce Gilbert. Gilbert only gets... He co-wrote The Other Window with Colin, or with Graham. And so it's like, it feels like a Graham song, but it's a little better. <laughs> Slightly better. Um, and then Gilbert wrote Blessed State. And that one was pretty... I actually like Blessed State. It's a pretty upbeat, fun one. I really like that song. That is one of the... It's one of the more subdued and unique sounding songs on the record, but I really like it. I really like that that chorusy guitar line. And yeah, he does co-write 40 versions with Colin Newman at the end of the record, though. Yeah. Lewis and Newman both write single KO, and it kind of feels a little like both their song. Newman writes more overall. But if you look at the lyrics, it's a little bit more evenly split, I think. Gilbert has a couple more lyric tracks. It's an interesting way to write music. To me, it's very strange to be like, all right, well, I guess it's not that weird to be like, I wrote the music, you write the lyrics. But usually it's because you only had one singer or if your singer doesn't play an instrument, you know, I don't know. I could see them. I could absolutely, absolutely see them doing a let's co-write like the Beatles, but like <laughs> not write Beatles songs. <laughs> yeah. To me, the standout tracks are... The 15th, I really like the 15th. Two people in a room. I like On Returning, which has those weird little, like, wet blurpy. Like, I think it's a synth. It's just like a... (laughs) (laughs) Touching display. On Returning has the... That's right. That's the one with the... The little, like, Mario sounding... uh, (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Running sounds. Mario sounds on it. And then, yeah, Matt Breff. Um... The songs I don't like are just the ones that just kind of like just go on and on. And there's a lot of buildup and no resolution on a lot of these, like most of these songs. Yeah. It's a very frustrating listen because it's just like, and the song's over. It's like, oh, I feel like we were going somewhere <laughs> and we didn't get there. My, I have, I guess going off of my uh, theory that this song is best rated by how you feel while listening to it. I think it's important to consider the context in which I've listened to this record. I'm the first time I listened to it, I distinctly remember driving in Scottsdale uh, on the interstate. So I think I went to North Scottsdale and was driving back home while listening to this record the first time, which this feels very like this record is easily a cruise control record where you don't have to think about traffic. You're just on the interstate and you can just listen to it. Uh, my my second context for listening to this record was not ideal, but kind of odd and made me notice the contrasts more. Um, I was very distracted listening to it, walking around Amoeba in Hollywood uh, <laughs> while they were setting up for a dog halloween costume contest in amoeba in amoeba Um, (laughs) so that in that context i was distracted through the quieter droning less dynamic stuff and took notice of the really standout songs the hookier parts the more upbeat parts so but yeah i definitely actively thought while listening to it like man i'm not getting much from this (laughs) But then skimming it before this episode, I was like, oh, I like that. I like that part. Oh, that's a good part. Oh, this is a better record than I 
thought. <laughs> so I've, I'm up and down. I'm context matters for this one big time. Yeah. More more than their other records. Yeah, I think you lose if you're not paying attention, you kind of lose some of the stuff. It doesn't help that a lot of the songs are kind of like this droning, not much going on. I mean, there's there's a lot there, but you got to listen close to it to hear it, I think. And so if you're like distracted in any way, you're just catching like the low, you know, just the low end stuff. But then like listening to it, I was like, what what's, what track is that? It's the one a mutual friend. I was like, is that a clarinet? It's a core anglais. <laughs> yeah, it is a core anglais. Uh, because there's much, much more core anglais. <laughs> Which that song also features uh, electric viola. And Haley Crystal of the owner of CBGBs on bass vocals. Now the uh, the viola is on a touching display. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I see. Yeah, a mutual friend though has Haley Crystal doing Haley Crystal, who owns CBGBs, doing bass vocals on this. Why, why, why was he there? CBGBs is in New York. This was recorded in like London. What? <laughs> How? How did he get there? Why was he there? Is he buds with wire? Maybe. I don't know. Who knows? Yeah. Or he was just in England for a trip and happened to be, you want to come down to the studio while wire's recording? And he's like, sure. And then they're like, you want to sing? Uh, it's just a whole like series of like, what is happening? A lot of bands would cite wire as an influence on them, most notably the Minutemen, Sonic Youth, and the entire DC hardcore scene. Uh, but I think the DC scene was more focused on the Pink Flag stuff. Minimum and Youth, I could see being more influenced by the all three of their records at that point. Mike Watt has talked about it pretty extensively, which makes sense. It's a very bass-heavy record, that, uh, and Mike's a bass player, and he's always talking about the bass. So Yeah, they're, the really abstract uh, Mike Watt stuff in the Minimum discography feels pretty influenced by the, the more ambient and abstract songs on... Uh, chairs missing in one five four uh but the short and fast you know really anthemic stuff also from you know pink flag yeah definitely feel like influences on d boone so you you do get both sides of that coin from wire it's not hard to draw the that conclusion the album peaked at number 39 on the uk album charts i think i read that it was actually one of their better performing records which i'm surprised that this one was but it could just be just momentum was driving them they would later go on to release 15 more albums, making it 18 albums overall, with their most recent being in 2020, where they released two albums, Mind Hive and 1020. 1020 was like an originally a record store day exclusive of like songs that didn't fit on other records. Um, I don't know if it's they're technically a compilation or if they just were like were written and they were like, they don't fit. We'll just record them all together. But it wound up being released wide later. And besides Robert Gray, Robert Gray left briefly in the 90s. He and they put out one record as Wire without the E, just W-I-R, but they still pronounced it Wire. And then he came back and then later Bruce Gilbert left in 2004 to focus on solo work. And he has not he has not been back in the band since then, which is like weird. Like you, you leave in you, you leave Wire in 04. That's it's just like, huh, maybe he just wasn't getting his songs on there the way he wanted to. Wire 
so I mentioned that I listened to the first five. Um, their immediate post comeback records are interesting to listen to and consider what else was going on in between. And it's it's interesting. The ideal copy was um, they used a lot more electronic elements, uh, a lot more sequencers and drum machines and things. Uh, and then a bell is a cup. They have this all of the songs have a much slicker more ethereal quality they have this and it's it's interesting those two records they sound like a little bit like new order and a little bit like um just like every uk post-punk cold wave dark wave kind of band uh that followed in their wake so it's really interesting to hear how they kind of created post-punk and then dipped out right for like the 80s post-punk uh, explosion happens. <laughs> uh, and then come back and they're like, they sound like all of the bands that they inspired. <laughs> More than they sound like themselves. Um, it's weird. It definitely makes their later stuff feel less essential, though. Yeah. Well, they waited out the most like booming period for that sound to kind of let New Order take over. And everyone else well overall any closing thoughts on it well it's not their best <laughs> mine thing final thoughts are i wish you'd pick that midnight oil record <laughs> i don't know what it sounds like i think i would have liked it a little better than this one it's a tough one it's probably the most challenging of the three original records it's got its rewarding moments though it it's a hard one to think about i don't know some people are like it's a classic and i'm just like it's in the classic era it's canonical Mm. yeah i guess at the end of the day it doesn't do very much different from chairs missing and i think that everything that they do on chairs missing that they do on this record they do better on chairs missing yeah that being said there are some great songs there really are some great songs on here all right. Well, I think that will do it for us. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. You can follow us on all those social media plugs that I mentioned up top. You can leave us a rating or a review on iTunes, Spotify. And, yeah, send us a message our way. Tell us if you disagree with our take on this record. Um, I don't know. I don't know what our listenership will think of it, but we might have some similar opinions with them. But that'll do it. Thank you, everyone. We will see you next week. <laughs>